I think there are still technical challenges to solve. So you're right, we, we do have all of these incredible tools at our disposal today, but there's still you know more to do around making some of them even more practical for those who you know don't have a degree in, in GIS, for example. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Tara O'Shea. She is the Senior Director of Forest and Land Use at a company called Planet. And today on the podcast, we're talking about Norway's International Climate and Forest Initiative Satellite Data Program, or NICFI for short. Just before we get started today, I want to tell you about a marketing experiment I'm running with OpenCage Geocoder. So OpenCage has brought a bunch of advertising slots on this podcast, just like the one you're listening to now. But instead of asking me to talk about them, they have given these advertising spots away to interesting projects based on OpenStreetMap. So the project I want to highlight for you today is called Map Complete. So you can find this at mapcomplete.osm.be and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So what is Map Complete? Map Complete is an OpenStreetMap viewer and editor which shows you information about features in a specific theme and allows you to update it and it does this in a really easy and intuitive way. So they have a lot of predefined themes that you can start with. So I've been looking at one called play. There's a theme called playgrounds, benches, binoculars, cycle streets, hacker spaces. We've created this theme called a map of maps. <laughs> this is basically a theme that shows you the locations of, of tourist maps, an open street map. And of course you can update this, but it's a super interesting concept. It's a really interesting idea and it's worth checking out. So again, the link to this is mapcomplete.osm.be. I'll put it in, and you'll be able to find that in the show notes. And so if you're interested in interesting OpenStreetMaps projects, this might be one to check out. Hi, Tara. Welcome to the podcast. So you are the senior director or our senior director of forest and land use at a company called Planet. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about something called NICFI. But why don't we start with this? Director of Forestry and, and Land Use at a company called Planet. Why, why don't we start there? Would you mind just sort of briefly introducing yourself? Tell us what Planet is and, and what it means to be a Director of Forest and Land Use there. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. It's great to be on the show. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation and to share a bit more about Planet and our NICFI satellite data program. So Planet is an aerospace and data analytics company. We are a public benefit corporation. And our mission is to image the full earth every day in order to make global change visible, accessible, and actionable. So I tend to say that we have a bit of a mantra at Planet, and it's that you can't fix what you can't see. And you know, ultimately, we think that is at the root of many of our climate and sustainability crises. And it's the small piece of the puzzle that we are trying to help solve through innovative aerospace technologies. So. We have hundreds of small satellites on orbit that are imaging the full Earth every day in a pretty high resolution and multiple spectral bands because we think, you know, having information at the pace and the scale of change on the ground is, is really critical to better managing, again, some of these things that we perhaps have not been managing well in the past because we've not been measuring them. Yeah, and that plays really nicely into that sort of old adage that what gets measured gets managed. And I guess the, the first point of, of measuring it is to be able to see it. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there's perhaps no global challenge where this is more true than the challenge of global deforestation, right? I think, unfortunately, 
you know, we all learn in the second grade that trees provide critical services, that they take CO2 out of the air and they store the carbon, they give off the oxygen. And yet we haven't really figured out how to practically or cost-effectively measure those services, right? And so we actually don't value them. And the economic incentive is to convert forests into other economically productive sorts of, of land use, right? And this has resulted in a totally unsustainable rate of deforestation globally. And, you know, it's turned what should be our largest terrestrial carbon sink into one of our largest sources of climate changing greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, this is a challenge where we hope and we work, you know, with with partners around the world to put our data to work to help solve. I was going to follow up my, my last question with another one, and it was going to be like, what does it mean to be the director of, of forests and land use? But you, you've answered it. That's what it means to be the director of forests and land use. Well done. That's right. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how can you know, these innovative space technologies and all the data sets they're producing, how can we actually put them to work to help create more sustainable models for, for land use and, and conserve and restore the forests that we have? Perfect. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So right at the start, I mentioned something called NICFI. What is that an acronym for? Yeah. So NICFI is Norway's International Climate and Forests Initiative. It is an initiative with the goal of saving our tropical forests and improving the livelihoods of those who live there. It's administered by the Norwegian Ministry of Climate and Environment. And since September 2020, we at Planet, along with our partners KSAT and Airbus, have been part of what's called the NICFI Satellite Data Program. And so this is a program that is driven and provided by by NICFI, by the Norwegian government. And it brings high-resolution satellite imagery into tropical forest monitoring systems um, around the world. So for the first time, it provides comprehensive access to high resolution. And by high resolution, I mean less than five meters per pixel, monthly data across the whole tropics into every NGO and government and really any user that wants to put the data to work for the purpose. Okay, so if I'm understanding this correctly, the government have Norway have decided to to buy this data or at least pay for it and then let other people freely use it as long as they're doing something around deforestation in the tropics. Yeah, that that's correct. And you can learn more about this program if you visit planet.com/nickfi. You can sign up to access it. There's tons of information on, you know, the goals of the program. There are resources for users and yeah, I would encourage folks to to check that out. So so you mentioned uh the spatial resolution and the temporal resolution before, I think you said less than five meters and every month was the temporal resolution. What, what kind of data are we talking about? Uh, what kind of bands are we talking about? Yeah, so it is four band data. So there is the visual, red, green, blue, as well as the near infrared, which you know is, is really critical in vegetation applications. And one thing that I think is really innovative about how the program is designed is there's actually different access levels. And there's different products available at each access level. And one reason for doing that is to ensure that we reach a wide variety of users. Because in the tropical forest monitoring community, 
you have you know lots of different sectors and and user types with varying degrees of technical capacity. So at what we call level zero, there is a visual mosaic product. So this has been optimized for display and visual interpretation. It's a three band optical product. And this is really useful, for example, if you are a journalist or uh, a local or indigenous community member. And so that product you'll see with many of our level zero partners like Global Forest Watch and others. At level one, this is an analysis ready mosaic product. So it's that full four band product that I mentioned. It includes the near infrared and it's optimized for analysis. It's a fully downloadable product uh, and you can sign up to that access at, at planet.com slash NICFEE and it will be available through your Planet API and account to you know, work with in whichever operational environment you prefer. And then at level two, there's actually scenes level data available. So this is for only a select number of named users. They're named by the Norwegian ministry, but they actually have access to the scenes level data that went into the mosaics, as well as to the Airbus spot archive dating back to 2002. Wow. Explain to me again how, how I get access to that. So you said through the, the Planet API, but my understanding is this data is also available in things like Sentinel Hub and, and Google Earth Engine. Yeah, exactly. So we really tried to meet users where they are and you know bring the data into their operational and decision-making environments. And so you can access the data exactly through Planet's platforms or through many of our platform partners. So for that level zero visual data, there's a number of platforms that are, are making that freely available to users. You mentioned Sentinel Hub. I mentioned Global Forest Watch. There's also a platform called CPAL that the forestry department at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN houses. So there's a number of partners making that data available. And you're correct. The analysis-ready data is also available to users uh, in Google Earth Engine, so you can run your analyses right there in the browser. And you know, through Planet's API and and platform system, you can use all of our existing integrations as well. If you prefer to bring the data into ArcGIS, QGIS, um, wherever it is that you work, I will have to get some links off you later on and include them in the show notes to so help people find this data and and understand how and and where they can access it. Speaking of who can access it or accessing data, do I have to be a researcher? Do I have to be involved in some NGO organization or who has access to this data or can get access to it? Yeah, it's a great question. And the awesome thing about the NICFI program is anyone can sign up for access. You just need to adhere to the license terms of the data. So it is a non-commercial license and it's for the NICFI purpose, which is to reduce and reverse tropical forest loss, combating climate change, conserving biodiversity, and facilitating sustainable development. So yeah, you can sign up at planet.com slash You'll see those license terms uh, that you sign on to there. But the goal really is to provide that comprehensive access to, to everyone because you know we think that it was really a challenge in, in solving deforestation, right? You have kind of everyone operating off of different information sometimes. And so the goal is let's have a, you know, a common, improved, high-resolution data set that can inform everyone's decisions uh, in this space. 
So I'd like to stay with with the data just for a second here and talk a little bit about the, the spatial and temporal resolution of it. I know that the planet takes a lot of images of the Earth every day at much higher spatial and temporal resolutions. Why is it that you know, your choice here between like less than five meters and every month, why were they sort of the optimal choices for this kind of work? Yeah, that's a great question. So it sounds like, yeah, you're, you're quite familiar with Planet's data products. And I think we are probably most well known for our PlanetScope data product. This is from our, our Dove constellation of satellites. And that images the full Earth every day at about three and a half meters per pixel. For this particular contract and program, we are creating mosaics from that daily data set. And I think one of the reasons to provide monthly coverage was to help reduce cloud cover, since the tropics are a very cloudy region. And the benefit of having this kind of daily scan is that, you know, largely at a a monthly cadence, have an opportunity to to pull cloud-free pixels, even in very cloudy places. So the goal is to have kind of that that common operating data set in a really analysis-ready way. So because the mosaics are, you know, we have already selected the best pixels, we've stitched them together. We have, you know, basically made kind of an analysis-ready data layer that everyone can can operate off of, and you'll see the you know the slight resolution difference between the the native imagery of the scenes to the base map. That's just a function of the the actual projection of the base map itself. So you, you mentioned uh, this idea of analysis-ready data before. So in the geospatial world, you might have heard people say like people don't want data; they want answers. Mm. And here you're providing them with, with, with data. But like Planet has the, has the capabilities of also providing analysis. Well, why was data the, the best resource to, you could give to people now to, to do this work in, instead of the, the answers? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, number one, we've had a lot of leadership on this particular issue through the UNFCCC process. So, you know, forests have been a part of the climate negotiations for more than two decades. And through the Paris Agreement, you have nearly 70 countries that have pledged to reduce emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, and they can receive performance-based payments for those emission reductions. But they do need to measure, report, and verify on those emission reductions. And they've been using satellite imagery now for, for several years to do that. So in some ways, the improved data is really an unprecedented, you know, improved in terms of the spatial and temporal resolution. It's an unprecedented resource in that whole process and, and for those countries. And, you know, we think it's it's really critical that countries have that sovereignty of, of you know, using the data themselves rather than just kind of hearing an, an answer. And so we actually, I, one of my favorite parts of working at Planet is seeing what happens when you get these data sets into the hands of those who have local or subject matter expertise. They will know to look for signatures of of things in the data that you would not even know how to look for. So honestly, I am learning from the users in this NICFI satellite data program community all the time, and I would not (laughs) presume to think that we could give them all all of the answers that they can find uh, for themselves. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I realize when I ask that question, it sounds like I'm being critical of the process. I, I'm not at all. I, I'm just trying to understand it. That's all. Oh, no. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's, it's great. You talked about like being surprised by what people are doing with this data, how they're using it. Do you have any use cases you could share with us, like interesting analysis that people are, are using the data for? 
or doing on the data? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, so I just mentioned, you know, several governments across the tropics are using it both in their kind of international measurement and reporting related to their Paris Agreement commitments. And, you know, we're now two years into the program. And so it's it's really cool to see the data being used in those sort of official processes. And governments are also using it, you know, for their own kind of domestic policy planning and uh, enforcement. And that's been really cool to see. We're seeing private sector entities start to use it to understand where do I have deforestation risks in my supply chains. We are seeing local and indigenous communities use it to monitor their territories. Some are even downloading the base maps to mobile phones and then using it in kind of their their own patrol operations and bringing new kind of safety and efficiency to those. And, you know, you mentioned the scientific community. It's been really exciting now, you know, the, the scientific peer review process, I think sometimes kind of lags the in time, the actual work being done. But again, now two years into the program, we're, we're seeing an explosion of, of papers and, you know, new scientific capabilities that this data is powering. So, you know, I could go on and on. There's the media is putting it to work. The imagery was used in a, in a New York Times feature story just a couple months ago. And so, yeah, we're, we're really excited to see how folks are putting this data to work on the ground. And like thinking back to my previous question about like, why not give them the answers? I, I guess this is why, because this explosion of interesting projects and use cases wouldn't have happened if you just said yes or no. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, like one example that comes to mind, the Central African Forest Initiative. This is a coalition of the six Congo Basin countries. And they are doing really cool stuff with the data to better understand dynamics of degradation, which, of course, are much easier to resolve at the resolution of planet scope than they are in, in lower resolution data sets. And that is such a challenge that's unique to that place. They have very unique drivers of deforestation, you know, uh, smallholder farming and biomass for fuel, things like that. These are dynamics that are really important to understanding in, in that landscape and that we were just missing before in lower resolution data sets. And, you know, they know best uh, what, what to look for and, and how to make sense of what they're seeing. So that's been just one really cool example. So are you saying that the people are associating spatial patterns with deforestation with specific causes of deforestation? Yeah, and I think that's one real benefit of higher resolution data is you can understand not just the land cover change, but also the land use change. So what was that forest converted to? And if we can better understand that, then perhaps we can better manage those drivers. You know, another area where we see this, for example, in the data program is there are many users that are putting the data to work to better understand palm oil, uh, where palm oil is encroaching on unforested lands. So there's one nonprofit, for example, called Aid Environment, and they are using the high resolution data to map not only where palm oil is encroaching on forests, but also how does that connect to international supply chains for commodities. So that, you know, is, is really cool because it's, we can now understand, okay, there's not, it's not just that there's deforestation there, it's specifically being turned into this commodity, which is specifically sourced in these supply chains. So it's, it just kind of leads to this domino effect of insights. 
That's really interesting. Did, did you, was there any sort of education involved with this release of data saying, here's, you know, seven, 75 different things you can do with it? Or did you release the data to the appropriate organizations and they just sort of figured it out? You know, sometimes when you, when you show up with some data and say, you know, here's some data, go for it. Well, what do I do with it? You know? Yeah. No, it's a really good question. And I think the answer is a little bit of both. It's definitely been a learning process for us, right? Because to my knowledge, this sort of data access program at this scale, you know, I don't know if it's been done before. So we definitely had, had to learn a little bit along with our user community. But I say a little bit of both because we have created, you know, a lot of resources. Um, if you go to Planet's website, you'll notice we recently launched something called Planet University, where users can access user guides, tutorials, webinars, all sorts of things. So we've created a NICFI satellite data program subpage within there. So you can find everything that you need in one place. But we have also been lucky in that there are many capacity building institutions and partners out there, especially in the forest monitoring space that we've been lucky enough to, to work with in this program. So for example, the Global Forest Observations Initiative, the NASA Servir Coalition, I mentioned the Forestry Department at the UNFAO. These are all you know, multilateral initiatives that have been bringing together forest monitoring users and space agencies uh, for several years. And so we were very lucky that we could also plug into some of those capacity building activities and, again, kind of reach users where they already were, were working and, and learning. I want to go back to something you said at the start of the, of the conversation, because we've been talking about all these different use cases, how people are using the data, and obviously they're using it in very specific areas. And you said something like, um, you can't fix what you can't see, which makes sense. So I guess now that you've got all these people using the data, you can see where they're using it. You can see where the streams are happening. You can see the bounding boxes of the areas of interest. So are things being fixed where people are paying attention, where people can see them? Do you see change happening there? Like for the better, do you see a decrease in the, the rate of deforestation in those areas where people are paying attention, where they're looking? Yeah, I think I think certainly the program is leading to increased transparency. And I mentioned, you know, some of the media stories that are also starting to use and publish with the program now. So I do think there is a clear correlation between this program, kind of transparency on the ground, and then action and results on the ground. And, you know, we are seeing real bright spots. I, you know, I kind of opened by saying you can't fix what you can't see and, and deforestation is this massive challenge, which I don't want to understate it is, but it's funny, just this morning I was reading kind of some of the latest global you know, deforestation numbers and how we're shaping up to the Glasgow Declaration that was made uh, last year at the COP26. And the good news is, you know, there are some real bright spots. So we're seeing deforestation rates decline, for example, in Indonesia and Malaysia and, you know, Southeast Asia in general is the deforestation rates have just uh, really gone down in the last recent years. And so I think that's, that's really good. But there are areas to watch as well. Um, I mentioned the Congo Basin earlier, and, you know, that's one of our largest remaining contiguous rainforests. And we need to ensure that we value the critical services that it's providing and we provide the communities that live there with recognition of that value and, and provide a more sustainable pathway to economic development. 
So we've been talking about deforestation being a bad thing. And so so in that context, this question is going to sound a little bit contrary, a little bit like different perhaps. And my question is, is all deforestation bad? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And the thing, you know, sometimes we talk about, I feel like sometimes there's this impression that all deforestation is illegal. And, you know, that that's really not the case, right? I, I think some would argue that deforestation ultimately at the root of it is an economic incentive, right? There's an economic incentive that says this land would be more valuable if used for soy production or as, you know, cattle pasture or mining or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of production that might be. And so there is, you know, arguably at times some economic benefit, right? But the reality is, you know, I, I would be very hard pressed to say that it's a, it's a good thing because it is a perverse economic incentive, right? We are losing so much more value in terms of carbon sequestration, in terms of biodiversity, in terms of sustainable economic development, right? What happens when that land is degraded beyond use? And so I don't think it's as black as or white as good and bad, um, but certainly right now it is, I would say, out of control. And it's something that we need to better manage because we're not going to hit our climate targets without first completely stopping the current rates of deforestation. I think too, a lot of it is driven by very short-term thinking. And we've been talking about that, like putting a value on these natural services that you know, a forest provides. And this feels like this is the, the key point here. How do we put a value on that? And so how close are we to putting a value on this? So I guess it's one thing to look at this high-resolution imagery and say, yes, it's happening here. But if we had a value, if we could say every square kilometer of forest is equal to X dollars, I guess, we would have a value and we'd have a, a way of, of measuring these, which activity is going to produce the most value over time kind of thing. So are we close to being able to do that? Being able to say, look, here is the value of this forest? Yeah. You know, the good news is I think we're closer than ever before. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, we have strong leadership in governments on this issue. So it is enshrined into Articles 5 and 6 of, of the Paris Accord. I think we're seeing an explosion in the voluntary carbon markets. So, you know, folks actually paying for those carbon storage services that, that forests provide through avoided deforestation or reforestation projects. So I'm really hopeful, actually, that we are closer than ever before of really valuing these services, as you said, and, and paying for that value. And I think what I'm most excited about is I think that geospatial technologies have a key role to play in really making this practical and cost-effective to do because, you know, they, they can help us, again, see what we previously have not been seeing, um, which, which is, of course, all of these critical services. And I think, you know, my personal kind of theories of change on, on this issue are we need to value and pay for the, the services that these ecosystems provide. Um, but we also need to screen and move capital away from destroying them, right? And so I think we're seeing real movement in that direction as well around really thinking through how do we create more sustainable supply chains for the commodities that we all rely on? And I think you're, you're really seeing, you know, we mentioned earlier the Glasgow Declaration, which had many large companies sign on to, because I think they are really starting to look at land use as an input 
to their production and, and realizing that needs to be much more sustainable. And so, yeah, I am very optimistic. I think we are going to value these services and I think we're going to allocate capital towards them and away from their destruction. Well, I'm pleased that someone in your position is optimistic. That that gives me hope. And I would agree with you too. I think it's not just a push or a pull. I think it has to be both. When you look at this problem, so, so now we've got the great tools, we've got satellites, we've got very high resolution data, people are working on creating software tools, analytic products, all this kind of thing. How much of this problem do you think is cultural and how much do you think it's technical? Is it the technical side do you think that's holding us back or, or the cultural understanding of, of what it is that we're doing and the effect it's going to have on us later on? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So I think both. I think there are still technical challenges to solve. So you're right. We, we do have all of these incredible tools at our disposal today, but there's still you know, more to do around making some of them even more practical for those who you know, don't have a degree in, in GIS, for example. And you mentioned that earlier, right? How do we, how do we just get folks the answers that they need? There's still, I think, a lot of work to be done in, in that regard. And then there's technically still, you know, we need kind of auxiliary data sets that don't exist yet, in my opinion. So again, let's say we could have kind of an automated high resolution, you know, we could tell you where deforestation is occurring. Well, you still have to know what supply chain is sourcing from that region, right? And there's, there's kind of all this parallel work being done right now in creating these asset level data sets and making them spatially explicit. So it's just to say, I think there is still work to do on the technical piece, but I really like and appreciate your question and point on the cultural piece, because, you know, I think that's really, that's very real. And we are talking about valuing nature. And, you know, I I think it's not a conversation that's probably happening in a lot of rooms just yet. I think it's, it's a concept that indigenous communities and cultures have understood and put into practice for you know, thousands of years, but I think Western culture has has a lot to learn from and put to practice as well. So I think there's work to do on both sides, and I'm really grateful that there's a lot of people doing great work on both sides of that. Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more with with what you said there. I, I just want to say I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of share some of your personal thoughts on this. It's really interesting, especially from someone in your position. So thank you very much for that. If we come back to the Nickfee project now. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of great things happening. Do you have any sort of concrete success parameters where if you hit that parameter, this project will will be a success? Or maybe you've done it already, but I guess I'm curious to know, like, how will you know if it's been a success? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. You know, I mentioned earlier, really learning from our users. And one thing that that we try to do is collect user stories and kind of understand the aggregate impact that's happening on the ground. And if you check out Planet's blog. Every quarter, we publish kind of a roundup of just a handful of, of the user stories um, that we're hearing and that we're collecting. And, you know, that's, I think, really our measure for success is, you know, is this data helping reduce and reverse tropical forest loss on the ground? And is it making those who are doing that work, is it making their work easier? That's really the goal. And I think you know, we, we are seeing success in, in that regard. And I, I mentioned some of the user stories earlier, but we are really excited to see how it's being put to practice. And I mentioned, you know, I think we are seeing the world start to move on this issue and, and it is starting to show even in 
those measurements at the aggregate level of, of global deforestation rates, right? So I'm sure you, you might have mentioned this at the start, but uh, and forgive me if you have already, is this project going to run for three years, four years, five years? Is there a limited lifespan of this project? Yeah, it's a great question. It is currently planning to run for three years through September 2023, but it has an option to renew through that fourth year as well. So it could go through September 2024. That's the current lifespan of the project. Um, but we are, you know, of course, thinking through continuity as well. It's just, there's no concrete plan that I can speak to or share, share more about past that point. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I was just sort of thinking ahead and thinking, well, if I was building like a, an analytics program or you know, a process around this that was going to help my organization, it'd be really interesting to know the, the lifespan, like how, how long can, can I do this? before I have to move on and restart the process, perhaps. Totally. Yep. It's a question we get from users a lot. And we do, we do try to clarify in any of our communications kind of what the timelines are. And it's making me realize I should have mentioned as well that there is an archive component to the data that's available through the NICV satellite data program. So for the level one users using the mosaics, they actually date back to December 2015. So they are available twice per year from December 2015 until September 2020 when they become monthly. And I mentioned also the level two users who have that scenes level access. They have uh, some spot data from Airbus that dates back to 2002. So on the topic of timelines, I wanted to clarify that the archive data is available also. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I want to round off with it, with this sort of final question here. So you, you work for a, a satellite company, you work for, for Planet. And you are the, or one of the senior directors for forestry and land use. What do you think people are missing? Are, are we missing anything in the geospatial community when we think about satellite and these two sort of topic areas? Or do people pretty underst uh, understand really well how they fit together and, and what's possible? Or do you see us missing something? Are there any sort of holes, topics, subjects, analysis that people are not concentrating on? Wow, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think we're lucky in the forests and forest and climate community in that we've been using Earth observation data for decades to, to understand changes in land cover and what that might mean for climate, you know, largely thanks to missions like NASA's Landsat mission and ESA's Sentinel mission. So in some ways, I think this is one of the most kind of tried and true use cases and user communities in geospatial. But I do think, you know, I, I've been really excited to see the focus, especially recently, on combining different geospatial data sets and, you know, combining things like satellite imagery with airborne LIDAR or hyperspectral data. And I think we need to keep doing more of that because, you know, the, the kind of insights you get from those data combinations are, what's that saying, that the sum is greater than any one of the parts. And so I'm really excited to see where this space can take us in terms of directly measuring those things that we're trying to value that, you know, we've been talking about today, directly measuring things like carbon and biodiversity. I don't think we're there yet. And I think it's going to take folks putting together different types of data sets and even getting folks from different disciplines to play with these data sets, right? And so I think that's where we need to go. And fortunately, I, I think we're starting to see uh, folks head in that direction, I think. Yeah, I like that one, getting folks from different disciplines to, to use the data, to think about how they can integrate it and what they're doing. And I think like during this conversation, I've noticed you've, you've said it quite a few times, 
that this idea of meeting the users where they are, I mean, that, that's really shone through for me. And I think this applies here as well. I think if we could meet people where they are, we could, you know, service different markets, we could reach different people, different people with different ideas, they would integrate the data in different ways, and we would get a bunch of different results. And I, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, if you can get someone who's trained as a computer scientist or a financial trader, so, you know, if you could bring this data into their environment and see what you could learn from them using it, I think that's when we're going to unlock a lot more value. Tara, I really want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate this conversation and, and the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. You have mentioned the URL a couple of times during the conversation, but if you could say it again for us now, please, that'd be great. Where can people go if they want to learn more about this? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about the NICFEE Satellite Data Program, you can check out planet.com slash And if you'd like to check out Planet's new Planet University, you can check out university.planet.com. Thanks very much, Tara. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. I really enjoyed it as well. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. There will be a lot of interesting and hopefully useful links in the show notes today. So please take the time to check that out. And if you're interested in interesting OpenStreetMap projects, take the time to check out MapComplete. So once again, MapComplete is an OpenStreetMap viewer and editor, which shows you information about features of a specific theme and allows you to update it. So they have a bunch of predefined themes there that are interesting. And the project itself is just super interesting. It's worth checking out. So again, the link to that will be in the show notes or you can search for MapComplete or go to mapcomplete.osm.be and you'll find it there as well. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for this episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I'll be back again soon. I hope to see you then. Bye.